I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of April 9th, 1989, Joanne Parks put her three children to sleep and went to bed. She woke up around midnight to the sound of her children screaming and to a home engulfed in flames. Although the fire was initially ruled accidental, Joanne was later convicted for arson and murder and remains in prison even though many doubt the accuracy of her conviction. This is episode 18, The Joanne Parks Story. Hey, Amy, it's great to see you today. Hey, Megan, how you doing? Well, I'm excited to be here with you and also excited that we have new patrons. So who do we have today, Megan? Okay, first, leading us off, we have Amber Hammond from Tennessee. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Amber. And Amber actually has a question for us. So what is your favorite case you have covered and why is it your favorite? I think I think we've definitely discussed some of our cases before, but I have a lot of favorites. It's always hard. Uh, I think I've said the Melanie McGuire case is obviously the one that sticks with me. But recently, we did uh, an episode on race and crime. And I just have to say, I felt really, really proud of that work. And I, I just I loved that one. And I think that might be my favorite episode that we've covered. You, Amy? Uh, well, I was going to say race and crime episode as well. But since you said it first, uh, I also really am drawn to the Lavina case because I think there are so many questions and it's not as simple as not that any case is simple, but there is not an outcome that anyone can live with right now. 
justice, yeah, justice has not been served in that case. So I think that's a case that I really think about often. I really like and, you know, I hope we can revisit it when there are some updates in that case. That's great. Right. We also have Amy from Everett, Pennsylvania. Hey, Amy. Amy. Thank you. Love your name. (laughs) And Amy had a question. So Amy said, what are your thoughts on getting people's records expunged if they haven't committed a felony in 10 years or longer? And how difficult is that process? So this question comes after she listened to our Race and Crime in America episode, I believe. That makes sense. And before I talk about that, I just want to point out that even individuals who are wrongfully convicted and exonerated do not have their records automatically expunged. Right. So I think first we need to first we need to acknowledge that I did some research in this area. And in my particular study, we found that almost 50 percent of exonerees still had evidence of the wrongful conviction on their record. So I think at wow. the, the very least we could do to people that we wrongfully convict is automatically expunge. And currently there are some states that do it, but there are more states that are not doing it. I, of course, believe that people's records should be expunged. And I don't think they need to wait 10 years or longer. I think if somebody has a clean record after three years, maybe five years for extremely violent offenses, then I think we can expunge. I think then we can expunge their record. What do you think, Megan? I am in favor of expungement, but not a blanket. Yeah, I, I, I do think there are cases for which expungement is not probably appropriate and there should be long periods of time. But I do think mostly expungement would only help alleviate some of these barriers that we create for people to successfully reenter society. Mm-hmm. Yep. Going back to those collateral consequences, right? Exactly. And the second part of the question was talking about what are the options for people who have a felony record? And it's really tricky because now that we can get everything we need just by click of a button on the Internet, even if you get your record sealed or expunged in, say, the court system or the criminal justice system, somebody can still Google you. So a lot of former inmates have issues because they actually have to work with someone who does website or I guess, yeah, I guess you could say website optimization. James probably knows about this more, but Basically, it's paying someone to make the search results. If you Google their name, the the articles that mention the original crime in which they were later exonerated for, those would come in like, you know, page seven or eight of the search results instead of page one or two. But that's very expensive. And as we know, most people who are reentering society, whether innocent or not, simply do not have the resources to do something like that. Right. Um, you could, of course, also petition the court for an expungement. But I know, especially with people who are wrongfully convicted, they don't have the money or the interest to really go back into the court system after they have finally been exonerated. Yeah, you can't blame them for that. Thank you for the question, Amy from Everett, Pennsylvania. And thanks to our Amy for the answer. Yes, thank you. Uh, we also have Brittany D. from San Diego. And Megan, you know what Brittany's doing? Brittany is a Navy veteran currently studying anthropology and American Indian studies. And she hopes to become a forensic anthropologist. This is like one of my favorite other careers when people ask, just so you know, I've actually had a forensic anthropologist come in and speak to classes. And I was so in awe of the work. I think that is so cool. Good luck, Brittany. Yeah, that's awesome, Brittany. Good job. Emily from Boston also wrote us and we're giving her a shout out. Thank you so much for listening. But also a shout out to her fiance, Liam, who also listens to Women in Crime with her. Emily, you got yourself a good man there. I have to agree. (laughs) Thank you to Emily and to her awesome fiance, Liam. Thank you, guys. 
Who else do we have? We have Fabiola from Portland, Oregon. I've always wanted to go to Portland, and it's still on my list. So hopefully I'll see you out there at some point, Fabiola. And finally, we have Samantha from Tucson, Arizona. And Samantha actually sent us a note about the Jody Arias case. Oh, this is very timely that she asked about Jody Arias because this coming Thursday, June 25th, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be speaking with Jillian from one of our favorite podcasts, Court Junkie. Oh, I can't wait. I'm really, really excited about this. We'll be talking with Jillian from Court Junkies about Jody Arias. As some of you might know, there have been some updates in Jody's case lately, and some interesting things have happened with both the prosecutor and one of her former defense lawyers. On this episode, we will give you the updates, and we will also take you a little bit behind the scenes into our assessment of Jody Arias from a criminologist's point of view. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really excited about this. And Jillian will be do- covering a lot of the trial points as well. So this will be a great, well-rounded episode. And we're going to allow some time for Q&A as well. Be sure to catch us there. Great. I'm excited to jump into today's case. So do you know anything about Joanne Parks? I really don't. I have to say, you pick some cases, you pick some stumpers for yeah. me. I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> you stump me. <laughs> I'm always surprised when I research some of these cases and they're so shocking and I realize how little information is out there. There's no shortage of cases. Well, oh, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, Joanne was a stay-at-home mom and by many accounts, she really loved being a mom and did the best she could. The reason I say did the best she could is they were a bit strapped for cash, and we'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. But Joanne, at the time of the fire, she was just 23 years old. She lived with her husband, Ronald, who was 41 years old, and her three children. So she had two daughters, Roanne, who was 16 months old, Jessica, who was three years old, and Ronald, who they actually called Ronnie. He was the oldest at just four years old. Okay, so Joanne and Ronald were married for six years. So do the math. She got married very young. She had a tough upbringing. She was adopted very young and reportedly she had a very hard time fitting in. Apparently her stepdad didn't seem to care for her and made her feel unwanted. Um, She was also the victim of sexual assault as a teenager by an adult member of her church. So as a result of that assault as a teenager, she actually got pregnant um, and she was forced to give up the child. And soon after her child was placed with a foster family. And then soon after that, her child died. Oh, So a lot of trauma happening very early on for Joanne. Again, she met Ronald when she was pretty young. Uh, Reportedly, he became abusive shortly after they met. Remember, they have about a 20-year difference between the two of them. She was quite young, right? Was maybe 17 when they got married. So she stayed with him, although he was abusive, as unfortunately we hear often. Um, He reportedly was both physically and verbally abusive. I also just want to mention that I said that they had got married young. They also got married after only knowing each other for one week. Whoa. Yeah. And Fast Ronald. Track. Yeah. And Ronald was previously married and had an 18 year old son from a prior marriage. So his son was about the age of his new wife. Right. So the family. At least they could be friends. <laughs> so the family lived in the Bell City section of LA. They actually lived in a converted two car garage. It was less than 530 square feet. It was three bedrooms. The two young girls shared a bedroom. Ronnie, the older son, had his own room. There was a kitchen, a living room, a bathroom. And although this seems like a, I guess, a small living space, they had actually come from a shelter before that. So they were actually really happy. They were living on their own and it was a good time for them. They had only moved in to this new home a week prior to the fire. 
Some say the house was in disarray. It was very small and messy. But again, they just moved. And they also have three kids and 530 square feet. Like, let's not judge that right there, right? Did her husband work? Her husband did work, actually. The night of the fire, her husband was working. He worked at a local packaging plant okay. or like an ice cream, uh, an ice cream packaging plant. Okay. So that actually brings me to the night of the fire, April 9th, 1989. Joanne, as mentioned in the intro, she put her three children to sleep and she went to bed. Joanne says she woke up around midnight. She first heard her children screaming and then she smelled smoke. A fire had erupted in the home and it was so intense that she says she could not get into her children's bedroom. So the way the home was set up, it's kind of like an L shape and she was on the opposite end of where her children's rooms were. Okay. Uh, She claims that she tried to go to them, but there was a wall of flames in between. The fire was actually blocking the hallway between her room and her children's room. But Joanne had a door in her room, a door that led to the outside. So Joanne ran outside the door to a neighbor's house to call the police. Her neighbor saw what was going on and tried to enter the home because the neighbor was told that there were three children in the home. So of course, as anyone would, right, you want to get those children out. Unfortunately, the neighbor quickly left the home and started coughing because the house was so engulfed in flames by then. At this point, um, reportedly, Joanne tried to re-enter the burning home, but she was held back by her neighbors. The fire department, of course, quickly were on the scene. They told Joanne everything's okay, the kids are okay. They took her down to the police station. Tragically, no one was able to save the children. At this point, she had no idea that her children were, in fact, deceased. Ronald had met her at the police station. The police officers had told Ronald, and Ronald had relayed the news to Joanne. The two young girls were found in one bedroom. Jessica was in her bed. Roanne was in her crib. And the older boy was found in the closet in his room. They actually couldn't find the older boy for a while, and they searched the neighborhood. People thought, oh, maybe he escaped. Maybe he got scared. So there was a lot of hope. That young Ronnie was alive, but eventually they found him crouched down in the corner of his closet with debris on him. So the night of the fire, it was assumed that it was accidental, right? There was no reason to think anything else. Although it was accidental, of course, they were still gathering evidence just to try to understand the origin of the fire. Why did this happen? At first, they believed that there was a wire in the living room that started the fire. So they were looking at burn patterns to try to understand, and that it led them to this area in the living room. Nothing at this point suggested that the fire was intentionally started. So shortly after the fire, Joanne and Robert moved to uh, St. Louis to be near Robert's ailing father. Joanne had been working as a caretaker at a Christian science nursing home, and administrators at the home said that the pair were quiet, they kept to themselves, and neither of them ever talked about the fire or the death of their children. So Robert stood by her. He did not blame her at all for the loss of their children. Okay. Actually, the police initially looked at him because he had an electrician background, but they quickly ruled him out. Because of his alibi? Yep, exactly. And because I guess they were, when they looked at the wire, it didn't look like it was tampered with. No, no red flags there. So I was well, also thinking yeah. you were saying it was a converted garage. So I was like, hmm, maybe it wasn't converted properly. And maybe there were some wiring issues. Yeah. So hold, hold that thought. We'll definitely talk about what could have happened here. Okay. So what led to the change of heart? Well, investigators became suspicious after they received a telephone call from one of Park's friends and former neighbors. So apparently many people disliked Joanne. There was one person in particular that was a neighbor named Kathy Dodge. And Kathy Dodge called the police and she wanted to let them know that 
Parks was not a good mother. Um, the children were often not clean. She once saw one of the children eat dog food off the floor. She's also said that she had seen Joanne give the children large doses of cough medicine to sleep. Basically, it was saying that the children were victims of child abuse. Around this time, they were also informed that a year before that fire, the family was actually burned out of a rental house in Linwood. So remember I said they were living in a shelter? Oh, right. So there was actually a fire in their home prior to when they lived in the shelter. That's an interesting coincidence. The first fire was definitely accidental. There was no doubt about that. But what Kathy Dodge tells the police is that Parks commented during that fire, if Ron had come home five minutes later, Jessica would be dead and we would be rich. So now... That's salacious information. Yes. Now we have a character assassination happening, right? So we have a neighbor saying she was a bad mother. And now we have this neighbor saying, and she also made this, you know, comment, this ominous comment last time there was a fire. And so now the police start thinking, okay, so if the first fire was an accident, maybe that's true. But maybe Joanne learns how to start an electrical fire. Gave her the idea. Exactly. So what happens? This is when the bias starts. The investigators are now looking for evidence to fit their new theory. This is problematic. We had the theory that it was accidental. So all the evidence was fitting into that theory that it's accidental. Now we think it's arson. How can we look at the evidence to now fit our new theory? There was allegedly two places of origin, and this became a huge focus. Now, why does this matter? Because if a fire is accidental, you would not see two places of origin. Okay, got it. This was based on burn patterns. In other words, they were looking at the depth of the char and the amount of damage. However, they ignored the idea of flashover and ventilation effects. So basically, what I mean by that is when you have a fire, it can, you know, the ventilation in the room can cause changes in burn patterns that can create an illusion of a second place of origin. Oh. So in other words, it appeared that there were two places of origin, but it could in fact just be that it was flashover. But we're going to talk a lot more about flashover in a moment. Okay. Another thing they were started to focus on is, remember I said the younger son was found in his closet, right? They thought he was hiding at first. That fit the theory this was accidental and he was hiding in the closet. Now that they think it's arson, they went back to interpret the situation differently. Now they notice that looking at the char patterns, the burn patterns on the ground, it appeared as if something was in front of the closet. So now they start thinking, oh, Joanne did this and she barricaded him in the closet. Because he was the eldest and he could have kind of gotten out or ran or something. Or who knows, maybe she has something towards that one, who knows. But basically what they did is they looked through all the remnants after the fire And it was almost like a puzzle, like what could have fit in this space? And they concluded like, oh, it must have been the hamper. So their new narrative is that she put him in the closet and shut the closet and put the hamper in front of it. Although they, as we'll talk about later, there was, you know, that was that theory was debunked um, later on. Now they also went back to that wire. Remember that wire? They were talking about how there was an electrical malfunction. They go back to look at the wire and now all of a sudden they notice, oh, it looks like it has cuts in it and it was wrapped in curtain. So this was never reported the first time around. And now they're saying somebody tried to cut the wire and somebody wrapped the wire and curtain to ignite a fire. They're taking all this, everything they initially saw, and they're changing it to now fit this new theory of arson. They also, of course, start digging into Joanne's reaction. You know, we hear this all the time. 
She didn't act sad enough. But remember, she was also told that the kids were okay. But regardless, you can't judge this. We talk about this all the time. How can you really judge the way someone reacts? People could be in shock and... You can't. It's almost never a good indicator at all of someone's innocence or guilt to judge their uh, emotional or lack thereof reaction. Exactly. And then, of course, there were um, some other neighbors. This neighbors start coming out of the woodwork now. One neighbor said, oh, well, she had no smoke or fire damage to her. Another neighbor said, you know, she was hysterical. Another neighbor said she wasn't hysterical. It's very hard to judge the credibility and the reliability of these types of witnesses. We know that. Regardless, two and a half years after the fire, on October 23rd, 1991, Joanne was arrested at her job and pled not guilty to three counts of murder with a special circumstance of arson. This makes her eligible for the death penalty if convicted at the time. Wow, because the special circumstance? Exactly. Okay. Aggravating factor, right, of arson. So she was held without bail. As you would expect. Yeah. So the trial begins in 1992, and it was a capital murder trial. This is a big deal. The prosecution argued that Joanne had intentionally set fire to her own house. They focused a lot on her character. Again, they pointed out that the neighbor tried to rescue the children, and that neighbor smelled of smoke and coughed for several days. However, Joanne didn't smell of smoke, and she didn't have a cough. Joanne did not seem to have any physical issues caused by smoke inhalation, so they're trying to say that that implicates her. One neighbor testified that Joanne seemed dazed on the night of the fire. Well, why wouldn't you be dazed? I mean, that's not really an indicting (laughs) statement. Other witnesses testified that, you know, again, that she was hysterical. Some said she wasn't. Either way, a lot of people were trying to destroy her character. And the prosecutor said that this was one of the most evil defendants in L.A.'s history. So they were really digging in on her. Now, are they de- are you, they using the demonizer, bad mother equals oh, yeah. murderer? Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Expert testimony presented by the prosecution, again, indicated that there had been two fires that had been set intentionally. Again, one in the living room, as we talked about, and there was this other one in the southeast bedroom. Experts ruled out an electrical source for the fire, which, again, that's what they said it initially was. Okay. And also, Ronald, Joanne's husband, did testify that he was not aware of any electrical issues in the home. But I don't think that's neither here nor there. Was he still, at this point, standing by her? He was. Okay. In addition to the testimony about the fire's origin, a firefighter testified that he found that unburned pattern in front of the closed closet door where Ronnie was found. And the firefighter testified that this indicated that something had been placed in front of the closet to keep it from swinging open. And then they had two investigators who both agreed that it was the laundry hamper that had been placed in front of the closet door because it matched the shape. So you have a lot of people getting on the stand here, focusing on these areas. Which all sound, by the way, kind of subjective to me. Yep, I agree. So far. Yep. The expert's opinion that Joanne was the perp also rested in large part on their mapping of the fire's path. So there was a focus on what we talked about, um, this idea of flashover. Basically, I'm not a fire person, but the way I understand it is when certain organic materials are heated, they undergo this type of thermal decomposition and release flammable gases, okay? Okay. So if that occurs, every flammable surface in the room that's not already burning can ignite in rapid succession. Oh, I see. Okay. Right? Flashover often makes domestic fires impossible to make sense of. Because everything gets ignited. Okay, that makes sense to me. Flashover did, in fact, occur in the park's home, but investigators said that the burnscape implicated the mother when, in fact, there's no way to say that. What it really comes down to is they were saying, we can't find a cause, so it must be arson. 
And unfortunately, they had, like I said, they had a lot of experts getting on that stand testifying to this. What about the neighbor who first came forward? Did they find, was there any reason that you could find other than just being a good citizen that she, did she have a grudge or didn't like her? Like, is there a reason why she came forward with this information? Um, yeah, apparently they had some sort of, she didn't, she disliked Joanne for some reason. Oh, that's I, right. You yeah. said that. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to know exactly because a lot of that's hearsay, right? Did Joanne testify? Joanne did not testify. I'm not going to spend too much time on the defense because I want to spend more time on the on what happens during appeals. But basically, the defense, their evidence really did demonstrate that the fire could have actually been caused by an electrical malfunction, such as a defective TV. So that the TV that they had was known for its tendency to start fires. Okay. And there were also other old faulty appliances in that home. As we talked about, they were they were having financial struggles, so it makes sense to believe they had some old faulty appliances. And as you point out. This was a new repurposed home, which used to be a garage. There's reason to believe maybe the electric wasn't done up to code. After two days of deliberation, February 1993, Parks was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In other words, although it was death eligible, she did not get the death penalty. But she has been in prison for, what are we talking, 27 years if I'm doing my math correct. So, so she's still in prison. She is. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Spoiler she's still alert. in prison. All right. Let's talk about the appeals. This is where things get a little confusing. So bear with me. Okay. 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 So as we know, there is a very high standard and appeals are rarely successful. So her first appeal was filed in 1993 to the California Appellate Court. And this was based on insufficient evidence and jury misconduct. Jury misconduct, you ask? I, I was going to. <laughs> Apparently, the jury was released for 11 days during a holiday in the middle of, I guess, their deliberations or in the middle of the trial. It was really hard to find information on this. But regardless, her sentence was affirmed in 1994. But what misconduct? Are they saying that they were exposed then to inflammatory like media or they talked about it? So they're saying it's possible. They're saying them being released for that long is just... okay leaving too many possibilities open. Okay. Right? Um, she also was not successful when she appealed to the California Supreme Court. Let's talk about fire science, though, because fire science has dramatically changed since 1989. And this is going to come into play when we talk about where her case is currently. Okay. So mostly it was just on the job training during the time of Joanne's case. Right. In other words, there wasn't really a specific training or a specific certification to be an arson investigator. Okay, in 1992, the National Fire Protection Association, they actually did publish guidelines and they started introducing scientific methods for investigating arson cases. And at this time, people started recognizing that there were widely believed myths that surrounded fire science cases. So we see in the early 90s, which right around the time where Joanne was convicted, people are just starting to see maybe this isn't such a strong science. So I don't know if you um, know the name John Lentini. But he is the most well-known fire scientist, and he is the one who led the way for a lot of reforms. He actually now works at the Forensic Fire Analysis Institute. And the reason why I bring him up is because he led an arson review panel in 2011 that was put together to review the evidence, reports, and testimony in the Parks case. So you have John Lantini, again, who is you know, the leader of... He's like the Barry Sheck of fire science. Exactly. So he had this whole panel gets put together. Him and the panel conclude that the fire in Park's home was not an arson. They found that forensic evidence used during the original investigation was invalid. 
and that the fire investigators who analyzed the case simply did not have a proper understanding of really the behavior of fires at that time. I'm sure they increased the educational standards going forward as well. And, you know, they talk about how this new evidence shows that the investigators in Joanne's case really based their investigation on what are now debunked arson myths. So in other words, this conviction is tainted because we didn't know then what we know now. It was also riddled with bias and unscientific methods. The panel's report also documents how the theories of the police investigators, such as the theory that the fire had multiple points of origin, was incorrect. Oh, they actually concluded that the fire spread from a single origin in the living room and then quote-unquote jumped into the children's bedroom. It only appeared to the untrained eye that there were two points of origin. In addition, the autopsy of the victims showed that the children had fatally high carbon monoxide levels in their lungs. Which means what? It means that had there been a fire in the bedroom, meaning if there had been two points of origin, the children would not have survived long enough for carbon monoxide to accumulate. Got it. Okay. So this aspect of carbon monoxide poisoning was not understood at the time of Park's trial. And most research about carbon monoxide production during fire and its effect on victims didn't occur until after the Park's trial. The panel also looked at the fire patterns on the closet door, again, that closet door where Ronnie was found. Contrary to the conclusions of the initial investigators, this panel determined that the door was actually not even closed at the time of the fire and definitely not locked. They suggest that the child likely took refuge from the fire in the closet. He was scared. He was, you know, he was trying to protect himself. That's exactly what I would have thought. Yep. Ultimately, the panel concluded that by modern standards, none of this evidence would withstand in a courtroom today. Um, so, you know, basically the report concludes that the investigators and the jury were misled by bad science. They even say possibly by no science at all. Well, it, it sounds unscientific. The original, uh, I'm sorry, the original findings to me don't sound backed by science. Was this report prepared for one of her appeals? So I was trying to find the purpose of this report because you would think that this report would be used as a jumping off point for appeals. And I think that it is being used. So right now I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but right now the California Innocence Project has Joanne's case oh, and they're God. relying heavily on the Lentini report among lots of other areas. One other thing I want to point out, there is also a conclusion in that report that says that the type of television um, set that Parks owned had been linked to more than 50 fires. Uh, remember I said at the time of the trial, the defense said it was probably the TV. But yes. they had trouble proving it because they couldn't really say what exact make and model it was. They were just kind of guessing. Okay. And some say this was probably one of the bigger parts of the trial, that the conviction might not have happened if they could have just showed that it was likely the TV that had this electrical issue. Going back to the Innocence Project, Joanne had first reached out to the Innocence Project for help in 2002. But her case was rejected because there was not a firm understanding of the fire science. Remember, the Lentini report didn't come out until 2011. So after the Lentini report, the Innocence Project started paying more attention to arson science as a quote-unquote junk science. Right. In 2015, the California Innocence Project took on Joanne's case, and they had an evidentiary hearing in 2017. During this hearing, they called new fire experts to talk about these new techniques. However, the prosecution witnesses concluded that they still believed it was arson. And the judge really just ruled that it was a battle of the experts. You know how we see this a lot of times? The judge all the says, time. Because the prosecution's expert is saying, no, it could still be arson. The defense has all these new experts saying it's not arson. At the end of the day, the judge is saying, 
all right, well, it's a battle of, you know. Which is unfortunate because sometimes it is a battle of the experts, but this seems like a case where so much more evolved about science and treating it like a science that this is not necessarily your traditional battle of the experts. Yeah, especially when you have Lentini who is like, the face of arson science backing this. So So they didn't grant? They did not grant a new trial. And then a judge in the Los Angeles Superior Court denied a habeas corpus petition in November 2018. This decision is currently being appealed. Uh, Basically, they were asking for a new trial based on error of false scientific evidence. There's a little more because that's November 2018. So yes, that decision is being appealed. But there's also a petition that's asking the governor in California to grant a commutation, and give her a chance before the parole board. So there's something called the California 12. Have you ever heard of this? I know where you're going with okay. it. Okay. So basically, the California Innocence Project is focused on these 12 cases of what they believe are a wrongful conviction, and they do a lot of work around these cases. One thing they do, three members of the Innocence Project in California walked 600 miles from San Diego to Sacramento to try to draw attention to these inmates for whom they believe there's really powerful evidence of their innocence. I also read somewhere that the Innocence Project is raising money to try and recreate the park's home in a laboratory so they could recreate the fire. Wow. Because this could be that quote unquote new evidence that was not available at the time during the trial. So the idea is to show whether the prosecution scenario is even physically possible. Oh, right. I think that's I mean, if you if they can raise the money for that, that's fantastic. It reminds me of what like Kathleen Zellner did with on you know making of a murderer on yep. two which she recreated she bought a car exactly. that was similar to the victim's car and tried to recreate it if yep. you could afford it exactly it's- the problem is it's not cheap and they're estimating it's over a hundred thousand dollars and we know that the innocence project does not have money like that right but we know that could be grounds for appeal so there's some fundraising efforts surrounding that unfortunately joanne's not in contact with her family she's no longer with ronald she does have some supporters, including the defense fire investigator and his family. They so strongly believed in Joanne's evidence at the time of the trial that they became one of her strongest advocates. She also has a few supporters who are former inmates who are now on parole. And as I mentioned, the California Innocence Project, they're standing behind her and they're really rallying really for justice for Joanne. So something that our listeners could do actually is ask California Governor Gavin Newsom to grant Joanne Parks clemency. Right. We can also support the California Innocence Project. If you don't have the money to support, you can also just share the story. Sharing the story on social media helps. You know, I want to end by just saying that people might not realize this, but a quarter of all exonerations are due to bad forensic science. So that's the second leading cause of wrongful convictions. And what's the first so everyone knows? Eyewitness identification or eyewitness errors. Okay. When we talk about bad forensic science, of course, that runs the gamut. Arson is just one part of that. But we do know that there have been over 40 exonerations in the area of arson science already. So this area is definitely picking up steam as we're learning more and more. Actually, there's a case, Christine Bunch. Have you ever heard of this case? No. Her case was very similar to Joanne's. She was convicted of killing her son and arson. And she was exonerated when they showed that the burn patterns, initially they said the burn pattern showed that an accelerant was used in the fire, but based on new science, they were able to debunk that and she had been exonerated. So it does, you know, I guess give hope, but a lot of these arson cases, if there is a question of an accelerant, we see those cases are the ones that are being overturned more. In other words, if Joanne's case, if there was a question of an accelerant, she would be in better shape. 
That's all I have, Megan. I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, first of all, I have a question. Do you think that uh, these arson cases have gained a lot of momentum since they executed? Uh, do you remember the execution of Cameron Todd Willingham? Oh, yeah. That was, I think, 2004. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, um, it, you know, he was executed and there was real substantial oh, questions. Yeah. I mean, his is thought of as a, a lot of people believe that he was wrongfully executed. Correct. So do you think that yes. the Innocence Projects are taking on more cases in light of his execution? I think it's probably his execution along with all of this new science that is now coming out. Okay. Those two together. I'm happy to see that it's getting more attention, but it's it's tricky because it's not like DNA, right? A lot of these exonerations, if DNA is found and then they retest it and it matches someone else, right? That's a slam dunk. These cases are not so black and white. But even DNA cases are hard and they take time and they're the first ones in line. You know, this, it sounds like almost arson cases are next in line. Yeah. It sounds to me like she was condemned almost for being like, you know, the through the gender lens, bad mother equals murderer. Exactly. So that was, you know, she was condemned for that reason without knowing, without knowing everything here, though, based on what you told me. I mean, it sounds like there was substantial, at least reasonable doubt as to whether or not she was involved. In- yeah. And can you imagine mourning the loss of your three children and also being convicted of their murder? It's just incomprehensible. No, it's it's not. So again, can you remind people what they can do? I mean, like you said, you can share a story, but there is there a petition also, you said, Amy? Or did yeah, I miss that? so if you go to the California Innocence Project website, you should be able to find a link that will bring you to some language if you want to write to, you know, the California governor. But honestly, in today's day and age, even tweeting at the governor <laughs> or, you know, on, so. you know, on social media, just showing support. Again, the governor has the power to grant Joanne Parks clemency. I know. I know of a case now where someone is actually petitioning for clemency. So yeah, that I mean, is, it's rare. It's rare, but that is the power yeah. of the governor. Yep. So anyone, if you want to reach out. Or maybe if you are Governor Newsom listening to this, maybe you'll. Governor Newsom, <laughs> we hope you're a fan. We hope you're listening. <laughs> Justice for Joanne. Justice for Joanne. Hi, listeners. We have an update for you. Normally, we do not have an update this quickly after recording an episode, but we actually recorded this episode back in March. I recall that because it was the first time we recorded separately during quarantine. You remember that, Megan? I remember. I was nervous. It's very sad to be apart. But anyway, just two weeks later, Joanne Parks was granted clemency. I did not know this. And I'm curious to hear uh, the process and why this wasn't, I guess, more newsworthy because I didn't see it. Um, To tell you the truth, I didn't hear about it as much as I thought I would have either. Gavin Newsom, who is the governor in California, on March 27th, he pardoned five people who already served their time and he commuted the sentence of 21 state inmates. Fun fact, other than Joanne, there were three other Innocence Project clients, two who are going to be released immediately. So a big congrats to the California Innocence Project. That is really huge for them. They've been doing so much work for these clients. So that's Congratulations. That's awesome. Let's take a moment and talk about what this actually means for Joanne, because unfortunately, it does not actually guarantee her release. If you recall, Joanne was tried in California, and the California Constitution gives the governor the authority to grant clemency. Now, clemency can be in the form of a pardon or a commutation. So what's the difference here? Well, a commutation is really just a substitution of a lesser penalty after the conviction of a crime. Is that like so, what happened with Centoya Brown? Yes. So with it's interesting because Centoya's case was a bit different. And I want to highlight the difference um, in just a moment. Okay. 
So the penalty, when we have a commutation, the penalty can either be lessened in severity, which means someone who was sentenced to death can be commuted to maybe, say, life without parole, or in duration, when somebody, say, was uh, mandated 10 years, it's reduced a mandated eight years, or it could be some form of both. I want to point out, though, that a clemency does not necessarily forgive or minimize the harm caused by the crime, and it does not erase the conviction, and most importantly, it does not prove innocence. It recognizes that a person has perhaps been rehabilitated in some way. So it can incentivize people to maybe take accountability or work towards rehabilitation while incarcerated. As we talked about earlier in the episode, Joanne was really a model inmate. She has a strong record of education, employment, counseling, and she even did some work with disabled inmates. So really quick, I just want to talk about how this is different than a pardon. A pardon essentially is forgiving an individual. A pardon is something you would rather have if you're in this situation. Right. Because a pardon can prevent the unjust collateral consequences of a conviction. We talked about collateral consequences quite a bit in our race and crime episode. But this is talking about, you know, barriers to employment, um, the restoration of civil rights, such as voting. A pardon does not expunge or erase a conviction. However, it does, quote unquote, forgive a person. So the commutation allows her to go before the board of parole for a hearing. And ultimately, the parole commissioner is going to determine whether she is suitable for release. So you brought up the Centoya Brown case. If you recall, it's a bit different. So every state does things a bit differently in procedures in the criminal justice system. So in Tennessee, where Centoya Brown's case was, the governor asked for the recommendation of the parole board before making the final call on clemency. Understood. In Cal- yeah. So in California, it's a bit reversed. So the governor granted clemency, but now it's up to the parole board to actually decide, really making the final call on whether or not she will be granted clemency. And when does she go in front of them? No, that's a great question, because unfortunately, like all other legal proceedings, parole hearings are on hold right now. Why is that? Oh, because of coronavirus? Yep. So because of the pandemic right now, it's really unclear when Joanne is actually going to go before the board. Okay, I see. So she does have an, uh, you know, she has the right to and they will hear her case, but it's just temporarily on hold right now. And that makes sense why it wasn't um, such a headliner in the news as well. Exactly. But meanwhile, her attorney, who is the California Innocence Project attorney, Raquel Cohen, she says she will continue pushing for the case to overturn Park's conviction before the California Supreme Court. So she's not, it's, her work's not done just because Joanne was granted clemency. She's still going to fight regardless of the parole board's decision in the case. She will continue pushing forward for completely overturning that conviction. Good for her. Thank you so much for the update, Amy. I'm really glad that we were able to get this into the episode because it's a really important development. And I'm glad that all the listeners will be able to hear about this. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll catch everyone next time on Women in Crime. Thank you. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime.
Sources for today's episode includes the book Burned by Ed Humes, NPR, the California Innocence Project, Courtroom Confidential Podcast, and the LA Times. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.